0: A zero-carbon world or a low-carbon world does not do away with zero-sum games. It just produces different ones.
1: Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, an entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm Zach Wheeler, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lauren Zhao. Today, Thursday, April 22nd, is Earth Day, a global holiday celebrating environmental protection. In light of this holiday, On today's episode, we'll be discussing how the global transition toward a less carbon-intensive energy system is affecting global geopolitics as we know it. Over the past century, energy geopolitics have centered on struggles to secure oil and gas. But if oil and gas become less important, will energy geopolitics eventually go away? To help us tackle this question, to end the podcast, we have Dr. Morgan Bazilian.
2: Morgan Bazillion is the director of the Payne Institute and a professor of public policy at the Colorado School of Mines. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations.
1: We hope you enjoy the episode.
2: So thank you for joining us today, Professor Bazillion.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
2: So to begin the podcast, would you describe to our listeners the concept of the energy transition itself? What is it? What's causing it? And how quickly is it taking place?
0: Yeah, a, a, a big... Good question. So, the energy transition, as it is uh, commonly referred to, alludes um, to moving the energy system from its current state to one that is low carbon or less carbon. So, less emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, as well as air pollution, and uh, towards a more sustainable state globally. And so, there are there are many transitions happening at the same time. So it's not one um, unified transition, but uh, many different hundreds or thousands of different transitions happening within the energy system, whether they relate to different uh, jurisdictions, different geographies, different technologies, uh, different social constructs, different environmental uh, impacts, different governance impacts, uh, etc. So the energy transition is sort of an amorphous Term um, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And some of those transitions, like uh, the transition of power systems or electricity systems in many countries, is happening first. And and what that means is that with the dramatic price declines in renewable energy technologies like solar and wind, uh, you're seeing the ability and the reality of electricity systems in many different countries uh, and jurisdictions moving uh, first in this low carbon um, setting. And you see that uh, highlighted in today's. So today is, um, I'm speaking to you on April 22nd, it's Earth Day, and the Biden administration has just put out its new NDC nationally determined contribution to the UNF Framework Convention on Climate Change and, and having a big Earth Day Leaders Summit, and the the, the U.S. contribution to that is a fifty to fifty-two percent drop in emissions from two thousand and five levels to twenty thirty, but if you read the 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 fine print in that, they are really relying very heavily on the power sector to lead that. So that gives you a glimpse of what. Um, the energy transition means and where you're, you're going to see action initially.
2: So on a more geopolitical level, which countries may be the biggest winners and biggest losers of the energy transition in the coming decades?
0: Yeah. So l- let's break that down a little bit. Um, the, these energy transitions that I've described uh, have different impacts and are happening at different speeds in different places. Uh, and that means in different countries, they mean very different things. And so one of the pieces of work I've done over the last few years is while is to look at the geopolitical questions of, of those impacts. And so while the emissions um, monitoring of energy transitions has been sort of front and center, that is... You know what kind of goals exist, how do you meet those goals from a techno technological uh, perspective. Uh, there's been relatively less investigation about what that changing energy system, how it will affect the relationships of sovereign states or international relations or foreign policy or geopolitics, depending on your taste for the uh, vocabulary. And so when we look at the geopolitical impacts of of energy transitions an exercise i did with several colleagues um in 2019 for the german government was to say let's look out to 2100 um make some scenarios up um we used four scenarios and look at how it uh impacts different countries from an international relations perspective so the scenario exercise we did was not based on rigorous modeling of the numbers but rather some guesses that of course all be wrong about uh, what the transition might look like and who might see uh who might be winners and losers as your question asked And so a couple of the takeaways from those scenarios relate to that winner and loser question. One is that a zero-carbon world or a low-carbon world does not do away with zero-sum games. It just produces different ones. So I think that's an important point that while we may see um, the kind of friction in international relations we're used to now dissipate or move away, we probably see other ones arise, and so we we do think that there'll be winners and losers. But it depends on what the transition looks like. So um, this this idea that a global that there's going to be a global win win that there's some scenario where everybody wins seems uh, fairly unlikely to to, to us. In, in this exercise, we did um, one of the key um, deciding points for how geopolitics politics plays out is the pace of change so that the pace of change matters a great deal. And what that means is how quickly these energy systems change will impact the ability of governments to manage that change. Right. So um, very fast change is difficult for government governments to manage. Um, They simply don't have the tools. And so It it, it's almost always the case that say technology comes ahead of regulation and policy, um, and we can come back to that. So the pace of change matters quite a bit. Um, Acknowledging that there'll be winners and losers is important, and preparing for that. And then um, I think a, a critical one, especially today, again we're we're recording on Earth Day. There's a large climate summit. Um, leaders of 40 countries and others are there and many of them are talking about high level goals so these are goals that look out to 2030 or 2050 um, decades in the future when those same politicians won't be in power anymore they might not even be alive anymore Um, and it turns out that it's relatively easy politically and diplomatically to come up with high level long term goals. Um, what's a lot harder is the sort of messy work of policy design and imp- implementation, especially implementation um, and so shifting attention from goals to these pathways detailed pathways is 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 a critical takeaway from our scenario uh,
1: exercise. Professor Brazilian, one thing I wanted to kind of dig in on here is when you talk about pace of change, I know this might be an impossible question to answer, but um, I guess if we could imagine you know, some scenario in which on Earth Day today, every country in the world suddenly decides that they want to adopt renewable sources of energy as quickly as possible through whatever means necessary. How would that affect kind of global geopolitical competition for resources? What would be the kind of pressure points that would arise from every country at once suddenly wanting to transition to renewable energy?
0: Yeah, so so I think e- e- every country does want to transition to a certain extent to at least more renewable energy, or um, to 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 these lower carbon technologies and, and systems. So that is actually not such a far flung question. That is roughly what we're seeing now. And like anything, there are all kinds of unforeseen impacts uh, uh, of that kind of um, movement, that kind of transition, and they range from. All of a sudden, the the energy systems of the future are no doubt going to be more material, mineral, and metal intensive. As an example, um, that's essentially fact. It won't, you know, it's it's unlikely to go in any other direction. And so, what 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 are what are the consequences of that? Well, we see all kinds of um, consequences. We're just starting to see glimmers of them, whether it's in the price of things like silver and nickel and copper or the demand for those things or the impacts on mining or the impacts on um, other parts of the supply chain from trade to processing. All of a sudden, you are changing the dynamics of entire other markets, Um, let's say outside of oil and gas, in this case, in this example. how that settles or where that goes is unclear. But there has to be attention paid to those uh, uh, exact things that you mentioned. And without attention being paid or somehow ignoring them, thinking that there aren't these um, other ties to the energy system, we're going to miss out on a lot of things. I'll give you a much more precise example. So um, there was a major... Uh, electricity power system crisis in texas due to a cold storm uh, just a, a month or two ago right that made certainly made national news probably made international news as well millions of people without power and and millions of people without power some for a long time so not just a matter of minutes or hours but days what was not covered nearly as much in the media coverage or the scientific coverage of this was the related impacts for other systems so there were um, deep impacts on the water system as an example and um, so without electricity you can't pump water you can't do um, wastewater treatment um, you can't move water around etc and so once you have a water then the crisis becomes not just a power system crisis, but a a water crisis. It also was not just a power system crisis. There was other impacts on natural gas systems. There was other impacts on public health, right? The hospitals couldn't get electricity or heat. Um, In some cases, they couldn't get water, even possibly more important. So you move from something that is a... um, System dynamic. We're used to creating a system boundary around of an electricity system, which in fact has much, much wider um, implications. But the coverage of it and the policy recommendations that have come out so far are related almost solely to the regulation, investment, and market of electricity systems, rather than trying to frame these as interconnected systems. And the same is true for more wider examples than than just at a u.s state level
1: and so in various scenarios of the energy transition we would see this dynamic playing out more and more of interrelated systems um you know being disrupted because of crises is that kind of where you're going with that
0: well sort of so um i think the 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 point is that these systems are already interconnected so they They're becoming more interconnected, not less interconnected. And that means between systems like the ones I've described energy, water, uh, food, public health, but also more interconnected globally, right? So the US is not an island, despite some of our policy statements about America first, et cetera. Uh, So we're interconnected with the world in many different ways, not just at the system level. And so I think. The point is that as the system changes, those relationships with other systems and other countries change too. And that's why you see the change in geopolitics.
1: Mm, that makes a lot, of, a lot of sense. I was just going to ask if you could explain um, the concept of rare earth materials to our audience yeah, sure. and then maybe talk about how uh, energy transi- transition would affect the geopolitics of, of these rare earth minerals.
0: Sure. So it's 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 usually useful not to just speak in terms of rare earths, which are a group of seventeen uh elements, um, but in terms of the wider issue of critical minerals. And so the the, the term critical minerals um comes from an evaluation um that says At least the US methodology and different countries and different regions have different methodologies for assessing what is critical. Um, But in the US context, the criticality is measured by uh, essentially supply side concerns. So, how much of this stuff do we import and from where? And so, very quickly, the analysis tends to focus on China, which of course feeds into other. Um, tensions that already exist in the United States and geopolitically between the United States and China, and so the critical minerals story, at least in some uh, political framing, very quickly becomes a story about uh, the U.S. fighting or, or, or against China, pitted against China, and the reason for that is that um, not only does China produce a lot of these uh, critical minerals. But more importantly, they have focused on considerations across the supply chain of processing, manu- manufacturing, and advanced manufacturing. So um, the, the the general uh, concept is that as the system takes on more batteries, photovoltaics, uh, LEDs, wind turbines, you're going to have the need for more and more minerals and metals, and these are not only Sort of exotic things like neodymium and, and rare earths, but more common things like lithium and silicone and copper and steel. So, um, it, it you know, it, it sometimes this phrase is phrased as something sort of mysterious, but the, the, the reality is that we're going to need a ton more of these things, many tons more of these things, um, along all of those, um. From the critical minerals list and rare earths to the more common things, and um, so that has downward implications for everything from governance to markets to trade to R and D to geopolitics. Um, so th- th- that's the, the that's the main set of uh, issues related to you know what we call the mineral foundations of the energy transition. Of course. Uh, a lot of those critical minerals, at least on the U.S. list, are needed for defense, um, the defense industry, for advanced materials, and, and, and other things to do with um, national security and defense. So it has that added um, texture to it as well.
1: And Professor, uh, please correct me if I'm, you know, going somewhere that is scientifically incorrect. But you know, I guess to me it seems like in the past um geopolitics of energy have always focused on competing or collaborating for oil and gas and the kind of way that i've seen these um these minerals that you just talked about described is almost like the new oil or gas is that is that a fair analogy or do you think that way oversimplified oversimplifies um this kind of emerging dynamic
0: you know it's, it's sort of both so um... You know, whenever you talk to academics, the answer is always it depends. But the 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 answer to your question is, yes, um, these minerals and metals need to be put into more sophisticated framing around how we think of their security or criticality. But, you know, we have fairly advanced ways to think about energy security in terms of oil and gas, um, and those have not been fully applied to critical minerals. Um, that being said while we have these analytical tools that are that are significant and some market tools that are also significant you know we still largely keep the fifth fleet of the u.s navy uh around nearby the Strait of hormuz now what their direction is these days versus in the days of jimmy carter i i don't of course have have direct knowledge of but um you know, I, I guess we, we need to start paying attention to a new set of things, that is materials, uh, in ways where our attention has largely just been, as you say, on on oil um, and to a lesser extent on gas, um, historically.
1: Um, one last thing, and then I'll pass pass it off to Lauren. You talked about this at the start of our conversation of the kind of four future scenarios that you mocked up with some colleagues about the future of the, um, you know, energy transitions, uh, the big green deal, technology breakthrough, dirty nationalism and, and muddling on. We don't quite have time for you to get into all of those as much as that'd be really interesting to hear about professor. But I'm wondering, you know, two years after you've written that report, where do you think in those four scenarios we are most similar to now? And then I guess why?
0: Yeah, so th- that that's a good question. And as you know from an academic, that's sort of the highest praise I can give somebody. Um, the, the scenarios we did were never meant to be likely. In other words, we didn't put them out to say this one is more likely than another one, um, specifically because we knew, you know, in looking at a time frame out to 2100, it was impossible to guess and we would definitely be wrong. But what you see um, is you see elements of the world or different countries in each one of those scenarios. So do you see um, technology rivalry between China and the United States? Yes. Do you see um, some countries uh, moving more inward looking? So more populism and um, country first type policies? Yes. Uh, Do you see some um, movement or momentum in global agreement on the fact that climate change is important? Yes. So we see elements of each of those scenarios in existence today, of course, unevenly and not um, in perfect concert with each other. But you see elements of each that, that exist. And I think that's the important point that Therefore, the scenario exercise is sort of valid in saying the kind of results it came out with. Re- remember that the results or the, the the lessons we came out with were not, you know, this technology is going to beat that technology or um, detailed scenarios that were technocratic, but rather that um, we have to move from go- uh, goals to pathways. We have to look at the pace of change and try to, do something about it, and that we have to acknowledge that there'll be winners and losers.
2: Finally, what role do you think diplomacy should play in abating future geopolitical conflicts that are a result of the energy transition?
0: That's sort of a nicely phrased question, um, but difficult to answer in as much as, yes, of course, diplomacy has a a big role to play, and you are all at a school that's very good um, in teaching and educating people to go into that space it turns out it's it's very very difficult to try to understand or make change in all of these areas and so that's why i mentioned that there are many different energy transitions happening at once and that we can use the tools of diplomacy um especially those that that are that are good at addressing uncertainty and flexibility in Looking to the you know an uncertain future, and that's not, of course, just in energy, but in all kinds of other sectors of the economy, and in um, the inner relationship between states. So, the, yes, we need to, to 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 think about these things and apply the tools sensitively and thoughtfully. Um, yeah, hope hope that helps.
2: So, do you think it's reasonable to think that the future of energy conflict can be cooled diplomatically when multilateral action on climate change has proven so difficult?
0: Um. Yeah. So, so you know, that sort of depends on your views and theories of change and views on multilateralism. Um. Do I think that um, we can? address these things with uh, through full consensus, like the, the UNFCCC process uh, demands? No, not generally, not in the short term. Um, but is it worth it to have those multilateral discussions uh, anyway? Yes, I think so. Um, so it's sort of a, a, a both and answer to your question that, you know, I think there's still a, a really important role for multilateralism. In addressing these things without global dialogue, we're going to have a, uh, a really difficult time diffusing some tensions um, that, that could arise. Um, but also, we're going to have to use other uh, other tools that are not full consensus, like the use of uh, clubs of countries and um, sub uh, national discussions, and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we can't rely just on one. Um, one aspect of international relations, but are going to have to use multiple tools.
2: Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.